This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. Today's episode is all about Avatar. Ladies and gentlemen, you are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora. I'm Andrew and with me today are... Steve and Ty, I see you. <laughs> I see you, Ty. And I'm delighted to say that I can also see two other people because we are joined in the virtual shed by Amber Bristian. And Amber, you've been with us a few times now. You're... I have. Do I get like a friend of the Cosmic Shed T-shirt or something now? I think I think we'll just make you a. I think can I do this on on Zoom? Make you a member of the shed or something yeah I think one go. more appearance you get a foot long sub <laughs> oh, wow <laughs> what an honor i'm here for we it need, we need badges andrew yeah no we do so you've uh, you've been on before if people haven't heard you um you're great and that's why you're back and also you are a host of the for what it's earth podcast which is part of the stimulus network I know you've yes, got another indeed. one. I'm going to plug that at the end of the show. Oh, thank you. And, but for what it's earth and the Cosmic Shed have been long since chatting about possibly doing an episode together on Avatar. And that's why we're here. And that's why we're joined by Lloyd Hopkins. Hello. I have just say I've left the cocoon of for what it's earth. So I think I'm allowed to call myself a podcast personality. Now I've been on two. I think so, yeah. No, I think that's perfectly reasonable. So, Avatar, the reason we've been doing this is because, firstly, for What It's Earth podcast, I love it, and I want to get you two on. And Avatar seemed to be a film where our interests crossed over in terms of climate science and films. But the reason why it sort of happened now is because I've been incredibly bored, upset, and everything else by the news and I really wanted to escape and the best film for escapism that I could think of was Avatar because when it first came out in 2009 I just wanted to keep escaping to Pandora keep going back keep going back to that moon such a beautiful place and I wanted to see if it still held up and it did still a wonderful place to escape to I'd like to talk to you about a fresh start on a new world. Ty, tell us about the film. So at the time of recording, I think James Cameron has just come out of quarantine in New Zealand to wrap up filming on, uh, I think he's now on Avatar 4 and 5. So he's filming the four sequels back to back in New Zealand. So I think him and producer John Landau are out there right now. Uh, a lot of the cast members, uh, including new cast members like uh, David Thewlis, Cliff Curtis, Michelle Yeoh, Vin Diesel, uh, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords. So they've just started, I think Vin- it's the first film production. Vin to... Diesel. Vin Diesel's going to be in it. Oh, Vin yeah. Diesel is... Groot himself, <laughs> patriarch of the Fast and Furious franchise, Riddick, Vin Diesel, voice of the Iron Giant... Okay. I won't hear any bad words against Vin Diesel. I'll leave that to The Rock, who will happily disparage that man at the <laughs> drop of a hat. But um, yeah, Avatar is, is fascinating because 2009, everyone was getting gearing up for James Cameron's latest film, the man behind the Terminator films, The Abyss, Titanic, and of course, Piranha 2, The Spawning. And there was lots... <laughs> You know, blood was in the water. People were going to say, this is James Cameron's, you know, this is his heaven's gate. It looks like Fern Gully. It's going to flop. Of course, people had said that about Titanic, that that was going to be his folly, and that was going to flop. Basically, what I'm saying is never bet against James Cameron. That man will do anything he can to get bums in seats. And because of him, for better or for worse, we've had to put up with shoddy 3D films. (laughs) <laughs> as a result of Avatar's success. But, I mean, th- this is a film that he had been planning for ages. Uh, for those five of you that didn't see Avatar the, the first uh, time around when it came out in 2009, 
it's uh, about the, the distant moon of Pandora that is seven years travel from Earth, where various mining corporations are strip mining it for the, the rare element, unobtainium. And our hero, Jake Sully, who has a twin brother who's a scientist, finds out that his brother's dead, and because he's genetically matched to his brother, he's needed to go out to Pandora to be the driver of an avatar, uh, which is a kind of cloned hybrid of the Navi, big 10 foot tall blue feline aliens, uh, with the objective of basically getting to know them, winning their trust so the big corporations can just plow through and mine them. And while he's doing this, he gets to know the people, learn their ways and eventually kind of go, fuck this, I'm gonna stand with them against the evil uh, representation of imperialism and white colonialism. And it is a story that has been told a hundred times before, as critics pointed out. It is your Dances with Wolves. It is your Last Samurai, the, the white soldier who finds out that what his people doing are doing are awful and stands with the much more technologically uh, inferior race, often representing Native Americans or whatever uh, ethnic minority have been previously mm. smashed uh, mm. by white people. And uh, yeah, the film went on to be the biggest film of all time, taking over two billion at the box office. Like I said, when it comes to visual effects, James Cameron's always pushing the envelope. And uh, Avatar was no exception with its crazy battle sequences, its rich, well thought out uh, ecology of Pandora. There were even reports at the time that people were committing suicide because they were so depressed. They would never be able to visit a world rich enough as Pandora. And amazingly, it's taken over a decade for the sequels to come together. But they're not together yet, are they? They're half done. And this, this is the big concern. I mean, I, I, liked, I, I like Avatar. I think it's a great film. I think it's really enjoyable. I mean, it's a story as old as time, but you come to James Cameron films for the escapism and just the, you know, pure cinema that he delivers. But a lot has changed in cinema since 2009. And for better or for worse, Avatar doesn't have the same hold on the public imagination that other franchises do. I don't think it's had the same cultural impact as something like Lord of the Rings has had, or Star Wars, or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It has essentially dominated box office for the past 10 years. So it'll be interesting to see how Avatar 2 and 3 are received because, well, if those two films aren't successes, I don't know what happens to the rest because it's now owned by Disney. It'll probably go to Disney Plus if it's not a box office success, but it is a a stupid man to bet against James Cameron. Mm. His sole vision is to get people into cinemas and with talk about a lot of the sequels being set underwater or it's going to have a very aquatic vibe. It's going to be interesting to see what he pulls out the bag. But every time there's like a, a new casting leak everywhere on social media, the, the, the general vibe is, you know, people are quite dismissive of what Avatar 2 will be and, you know, that there isn't that public interest for it. But then that was exactly what it was when the first Avatar film came out, that people yeah. were very dismissive of it and everyone went to go see it. So I am incredibly curious about what happens when the sequels finally arrive. I mean, if you're 16 years old right now, you were four when the first film came out. Are teenagers excited by Avatar? I don't know. This is always the key cinema-going demographic. So from a film, someone who works in the film industry and is a film fan and is just fascinated by the, the films of James Cameron, the next couple of years for me are going to be fascinating but i will happily bet my money that avatar 2 will not flop it's just a case of how big a hit it will be will it be avengers level big probably not but you know that cameron's going to bring the spectacle thanks ty as i say i went to it i went to see it i think five or six times in manchester's wonderful imax massive screen that 3d immersive feeling that you get for Pandora is just I tried to recreate it here with my 3D projector and my little screen but it's quite big and it works I have to say however many years we are later too many 
um, it holds up. It's still an incredibly beautiful film to watch. And it did get a lot of criticism. It felt like to me at the time that I think by the third or fourth time I was seeing it, people were starting to complain about the kind of Pocahontas, it's just that story come round again. Um, but before that, it was just it was just excitement about how beautiful it looks. And I don't really know why people can't just love it for what it is. That said, what does everyone else think? Emma? Do you know what? When we sat down to watch it um, the other week, I mean, I was, I was excited because I absolutely loved it when I first saw it. I remember not really knowing much about it and my dad taking me and my sister and him saying, like, this is going to be amazing. Like, you're, you're going to love it. Like, I mean, you love nature. This is like nature on an amazing scale. And just thinking, yeah, whatever, dad's trying to just do something really nice for me and my sister. It'll be fine. And then coming out and thinking, oh, my God, like, wow, I've never seen anything like that. So I was really interested to see if I still loved it if I, if it would feel three hours long, um, and if the graphics held up, and I didn't even notice those three hours going, I completely went back into that space of, oh my God, this is amazing, it's so beautiful. Like, I would love to have been in the room with the people that were designing and drawing up the initial plans for what Pandora was gonna look like. I almost forgot about like the fact that there was other parts of humanity. Like when I think about the film, I only think about the bits in the forest, like the the base and all of the actual shot in reality stuff no interest in that whatsoever like get me in one of those trees it it was just yeah i was surprised by how quickly and pleased by how quickly i fell back into this is amazing mm. i love this mm. oh, that's good to hear i mean speaking of trees that's heartbreaking isn't it oh i mean seriously that's not okay. It's a bit like, you know, in Gravity, when they smash up the International Space Station and it just hurts. I got, now, basically, since then, I just go around hugging trees. Lloyd? Yeah, I saw it when I came out in the cinema. And from what I remember, it was the real, like, standard bearer for the revival of 3D. Um, I remember, yeah, the hype around it. Um, and I, I think I enjoyed it more this time around, um, just in the comfort of my own home just because i felt like at the time there was such a big hype about it being the next big thing um you're talking about comparing it to like lord of the rings and how it never never did um I, I felt like there was such expectation when it came out about how it was going to just transform the way we saw cinema etc um I, I think i just enjoyed it more now just for the spectacle um you just relax into it a little bit and just get get a bit more lost rather than worrying like when I went to see it the first time, I was so focused on what the 3D effects were. I remember those um, oh, the, the floating seeds coming along in your vision and just getting really distracted by that. Oh, that's really cool, etc. Whereas now, yeah, you could just I could just relax into it a bit more. Later in the episode, we're going to talk about some of the science related with it, and we have an interview with a scientist who's been in the press in the last couple of days because he's worked out along with a couple of other scientists that there's about 36 alien civilizations in our galaxy that we can communicate with. And we'll be talking a little bit more about the science, but Steve. Hello. How's the boat? Uh, it's floating. It's, it's raining at the moment. So sorry if you've got any noise from my flat roof, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Good place to be locked down. Good place to watch Avatar. It's a pretty good place to watch Avatar. I wasn't sure whether it'd hold up. I think um, I had I had similar feelings about that. But as soon as the opening sequence started, I was absolutely hooked. And uh, thank you for suggesting it and, and getting me to, to watch it again. Um, and it even holds up on my slightly smaller non-3D screen. Um, I I really loved it when it came out originally and um possibly not for the reasons that i thought i would you know that i am a massive tech geek um and things in avatar that i would normally get really excited about are things like the mech suits and the flying drone ships and cryo sleep and intersolar system travel but in avatar they're all bad things um i, I will say they're not the worst thing in that movie. Um, it's an absolute bleeding travesty that um, 
James Cameron decided to call this very hard to find mineral that is the whole reason <laughs> for their invasion of a planet and destruction of an ecosystem, unobtainium. That's been a joke for so long. Um, and it uh, it's a funny in-joke, but it really pulled me out of the story every single time. Anyway, with that rant over, the things that did hook me um, about the science behind Avatar, aside from the fact that it's just a beautiful movie, um, are the wonderful biology and physics, the geophysics and astrophysics, exoplanets and, and exomoons, and particularly the exoplanet side of things, was, was fairly new um, back in 2009. We, we didn't really have any evidence of exoplanets um, uh, up until... Uh, the Kepler Space Telescope came. Okay. The, the late 1980s, we we had some sort of circumstantial evidence that that didn't really get confirmed till sort of 10, 20 years later. Um, 2009, the Kepler Space Telescope launched, and now we've got over 4,000 confirmed exoplanets and 4,000 more candidates that are still being looked at. So, um, yeah, James, James Cameron definitely uh, scooped the. Uh, astrophysicists there um and then there's a load of other really nice stuff i i love the idea of avatars putting yourself in another biological form mm. um the, the whole transfer of consciousness on a permanent basis thing is a bit more of a reach at the moment but um he gets away with with that because it's uh a, a totally different ecology and 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 biology on that planet mm. well not entirely because the the navi are humanoid they look incredibly human uh to to the point of um well all the all their physical uh parts the the female ones have breasts and uh i think cameron said that they're not a mammalian species so so there's a bit of artistic license there um but yeah the the film is just beautiful there's so much really really cool science in it um and then i really liked both in the run up to it i was getting quite excited and and in seeing the film i really liked the tech behind the movie as well um there were there were some real leaps in motion capture it in my opinion was the first actually watchable and worth watching 3d movie it set a precedent for some travesties after that, but but Avatar itself was was great, and the CG was just wonderful. Um, so yeah, there's there's loads to like about the movie. Just to mm. respond to the unobtainium uh, part, <laughs> part which obviously the film got a bit of a kicking for, and rightly so. But I'm sure I'm not alone amongst us who remembers and is a big fan of 2003's The Core. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> with its this is the host of the Bristol Fad Film Club I don't know what you're talking about but uh, Unobtainium is a big part of that film um, basically it is a fictional hypothetical material that transfers heat into energy and I believe in engineering circles Unobtainium is the term for any kind of hypothetical element yeah. uh, that is needed so I think because James Cameron is a bit of a is a massive tech nerd and he's also pretty on it when it comes to to most things because he can afford to be uh i think that was kind of like i think he heard that that's what they do in engineering circles and put it in yeah for that reason it's, it's and then, just so kind of cliquey did, yeah. did it stick out as much to the non-physical oh, scientists in the room it did make yeah. me laugh when i heard it i did roll my <laughs> eyes and was a little bit like oh come on guys really Cheap shot, just, I thought. It just sounds like a way of getting investment from people. It's like, oh, it's, it's, it's unobtainable. But if you give us some money, we can go to this planet and we can just about get some. But uh, I, I feel sorry for James Cameron now hearing that, that it is actually, uh, you know, an engineering term. He, he, he probably thought he was, <laughs> he probably thought he was, you know, being really clever and then everyone just slated him for it for the next 10 years. Well, I think you... the filmmakers of the core just took a big sigh of relief and went, Thank God no one's going to come looking for us for that stupid name. They can all pile on to James Cameron. I think that we need to do some science. When I look at this film, it's incredibly beautiful, but it's taken its inspiration from nature here on Earth. And there's bioluminescence. 
it does occur in nature. It's not completely abstract for them to have plonked into this world, um, but it still it still felt very different, didn't it? But it's still recognisable enough, I think, for people to connect to. Uh, there was enough similarity in the nature there for people to still feel very strongly as they would to, to nature here. But I did I did Google bioluminescent trees and I found um, that a team in MIT, uh, I think in 2017, had managed to engineer a new, a new way of creating bioluminescence in plants because it does occur in kind of plankton and fireflies naturally. Uh, and previous kind of efforts to make plants fluoresce, as it were, were to... Um, genetically engineer them to produce this protein themselves but a new fun thing called plant nanobiotics you can see I've got my notes um, they, they've managed to package up uh, this enzyme and the coenzyme that are required um, in fireflies to create this bioluminescence in order to, to kind of actually travel into the plant itself so that they didn't have to genetically engineer it they managed to basically get watercress to give off a dim light for four hours which doesn't sound very exciting when you I'll, put it like that. But I'll they be do. honest, Pandora <laughs> sounds more exciting. Yeah, exactly. But I think maybe to either please the funders or get their name in the headlines, they said, hey, this is the first step towards streetlights. We could engineer this technology in trees and we could have streetlights doing this, which that sounds really, really damn cool. And great for the planet, I'm sure. Yeah, bioluminescence. You do get it a lot in fungi. I think there's around like 70 different species uh, that have bioluminescence. You get it in a lot of uh, fish, especially deep sea, a lot of bacteria. Um, and as Emma was saying, it's a, it's a protein and an enzyme. So it's uh, luciferin and luciferase. Uh, the luciferase enzyme will grab some oxygen and uh, bind it to luciferin to um, basically create high energy molecule, which just gives off this light. Um, but what's really interesting as well is that um, in fish, it's evolved probably like 20 to 30 times separately. So not necessarily all coming from the same sort of point of evolution. All these different fish have come to bioluminescence separately. Um, so in some cases, it's uh, not themselves that are creating the light. They take in uh, microorganisms, bacteria, which do it for them. Or in some cases, yeah, they do create it themselves. Hey, that's really because so if, if there are aliens on another planet and life had evolved on another planet, etc., then they could equally they could have got um, bioluminescence if it's evolved in several different ways here on Earth. Well, that's it, because um, the. Well, the main reason uh, people think uh, this evolved in the first place is because luciferin is a really good antioxidant and you want antioxidants to be able to, for example, repair genetic damage that occurs from UV radiation. And obviously you're going to get UV radiation wherever you are in the universe, pretty much. Um, so it's, it's sort of like a byproduct that stuck around and had a lot of uses. Uh, so bioluminescence is really costly metabolically. You have to put in a lot of uh, resource, a lot of energy to do it. So it's got to have some reason for doing it. So that's either attract a mate in the case of a firefly or it's to um, ward off a predator or in some cases to attract bigger predators to get your predator. So there are a lot of reasons for evolving in the first place and a lot of uh, uses. So I'm not an exobiologist, but I'd assume that, yeah, there's no reason why it couldn't evolve on another planet. I'm not an exobiologist either but i do know an astrophysicist and i spoke to him recently because he was in the news because he'd said that there's around 36 alien civilizations that we can communicate with here he is my name is christopher consolis and i am a professor of astrophysics at the university of nottingham can you explain what's been going on yeah so it's sort of like a drake equation that we used uh, it's not exactly the same thing because we do things a bit differently but it, it's it's sort of this sort of the same so essentially what we've done which is different from drake is that we actually uh, calculate how many stars are in our galaxy which have uh, an age which is old enough to have formed life based on how it has on Earth. So it's taken about 4.5 billion years to form on Earth. So a very simple and, let's say, first-order look at this question in a new way is to say, well, how many stars are older than about 5 gig years, billion years, sorry, technical term, uh, billion years, and um, that's enough time for life to form 
if life forms the same way it does on Earth. So if you have a planet around a star in the habitable zone, that is where it's not too hot, not too cold from its host star, and it is the right type of planet, which we know from things like the Kepler mission about planetary uh, distributions around stars now, how many, how many planets around each star, uh, what are the mass of those planets, and so on, then we can uh, basically um, solve the Drake equation in a sense, but knowing exactly how many stars could host life, uh, exactly what fraction of those stars have a planet, what fraction of those are in the habitable zone, and uh, what fraction now we have metallicity distributions. Metallicity is an astronomer term, meaning anything, any, any elements heavier than, than helium, because you need uh, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen for, for life. And so which, which stars, what fraction of stars have enough metals, metals being these, these elements that are not helium, hydrogen, what fraction have enough of these metals like our sun, because our sun is, is, is a fairly rich, metal-rich star, and that certainly has something to do with with the fact that life formed around it, right? If you have all just helium hydrogen, you can't form life, at least uh, not, not any kind of life that we can imagine. So once you put all that together, uh, you can actually calculate a real number without speculating on anything beyond the assumption that life will form under the certain conditions under which we know it has formed at least once. Now, we could be, it could be wrong. We could, we could be an accident, and that's certainly possible, and that's something that we discuss in our paper. We could just be something like, you know, just chance. It's certainly possible. Um, and also, it relies on knowing about the lifetime of civilizations. This is one of the key things, also a key thing in Drake Equation, and I think the most interesting part of the whole, this whole discussion is the lifetime of these civilizations. And we can go into that more detail. I hope we do, but Essentially, the longer uh, the average intelligent communicating life exists, the more of them we will find in our galaxy. If life, like on this planet, is essentially normal for stars like our sun, then how many have we got? If you do the calculation, what you find is a range from about a few, one or two, uh, up to about 200. So that's assuming if you look at all the stars like like that 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 will, will that have been around for at least four and a half billion years, that ha- that the fraction which have planets which we know, and and the fraction in the habitable zone which we know, and then you you just say well, the the if we assume that of those stars, the average lifespan has been a hundred years, of the civilization on it that can communicate, then what fraction of them, and then we assume that that's been randomly distributed. At least that's one of the ways we do it. We do it in a few ways. But one of the ways is you assume that the 100 years, which is how long we've been around, the 100 years where they're able to communicate has been just randomly distributed since they were about four and a half billion years old. How many would we expect to see today? So, you know, for example, you could have um, stars which are 10 billion years old and certainly plenty of stars like that in our galaxy. And um, they could have had a technical civilization communicating five billion years ago on that star and uh that could have lasted for a million years for example and we never would have detected it simply because it existed before even the sun formed which is certainly a possibility so when you put it all together you get you going going from you know billions of stars on our own galaxy to just having uh, a handful of possible civilizations um you do this calculation and and if you if you're very pessimistic and think that life is just uh, or intelligent life is a very random process, then you would get uh, even fewer than than the um, the thirty six to, um, to from zero to uh, two hundred with the error bar on that. Okay, uh, so do, why do you end up at thirty six rather than forty two? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, right? I could have tried harder. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, would have been cool, right? I mean, when I when I first did this project, I actually was very very pessimistic about any life besides our own in the galaxy, and I kind of wanted to show that it, that there was very little that you know maybe that number would be one or two. Uh, but when we did we did the calculation and we checked it again and again, and that's the number that we got was was thirty six. Now that's just the central number of the calculation. There's a the error bar, which is the range. Let's say a sixty eight percent likelihood range of where you would where you would find the right number under our assumptions of course yeah but so but under your assumptions it can be one so it can just be us it could be yeah mm-hmm. that's right but it could be 200 but the thing is is that this is 
in some in some ways um, a pessimistic number in terms of the life expectancy of civilizations. So if civilizations can last for more than a hundred years, uh, which I hope that this one does, uh, as an example, <laughs> you never know though, then you would expect more. So this is under the assumption that things last at least as long as ours, ours has. If there's 200, um, why haven't we heard from them? Yeah, that's a great question. Just the Fermi paradox, right? So uh, Fermi asked, uh, Enrico Fermi, great Italian physicist, asked if there are aliens or uh, extraterrestrial civilizations that are, that are, that are um, technical, technologically sophisticated, how come we haven't seen any yet? And uh, that's a great question because you, you can easily see that, that if you have and you do have 13.8 billion years of time in the galaxy in which life could form and evolve and become technological and advanced, then, you know, inevitably it seems that you would have seen something else within our galaxy, given all of that time span. So there's many solutions to the Fermi paradox. But I would say that our work, one of the, one of the things that it, that, it, that, it, that it would suggest as a solution to that is that these civilizations, if there are as few as we calculate, would have to be very far away. And we calculate that number to be about 17,000 light years if the central number of our calculation is, is the correct one. That's very far away. And so, for example, if you, have, if you want to communicate with such a civilization, you would have to wait 17,000 years um, to send a signal if you detected anything. Okay, That's one thing. Second thing is, is that uh, the signals from something like a civilization 17,000 light years away would be very faint. So it would be extremely hard to detect that. You couldn't detect it with the technology we have today, unless the signals were much brighter than anything that we admit. So that is a possible other reason. It's just we haven't, we haven't been able to detect these things because they're far away and because this, the signals they emit are too faint to really, to really detect. And the other possible solution is that um, the lifespan of civilizations is not that long. So if it's very short, then... And even if the average, the average could be less than 100 even. If it's less than 100, then you would have even less than the 36 plus or minus range we talked about. So it could be one of those, those things. Of course, we don't know which one it is, but um, I think our work suggests that those are possible solutions to it. What are these? So how, how are you defining a civilization? Yeah, okay, good point. Yeah, so a technical communicating civilization is a civilization which reveals its presence by uh, emitting electromagnetic radiation into space that we could that we could possibly detect and so we've been doing that for about 100 years so that's what i mean by a technological advanced uh, communicating civilization so there could be life on other planets that's as sophisticated as all other life on this planet but unless they're producing radio waves we we would that's know. right so for example you know even a few hundred years ago we've had um, of course, intelligent civilization doing plenty of cool things, but uh, nobody would have been able to detect us, um, at, at least not, not from our radio emissions because we weren't emitting any. And so we've only, you know, if you look at our, our space bubble in a sense of, of how you could detect us, we're still only 100 light years across. And that's really nothing in terms of the volume of a galaxy. So no, nobody else would have detected us either unless there's something within 100 light years, which there, there almost certainly isn't. So there there have been no chances for anyone to have found us. There's a possibility that wherever life exists, given a hundred years of radio, they elect some people as stupid as we have, <laughs> and the civilizations don't last much longer. Yeah. Is that what's going wrong here? You know what? I, I hope not, because um, <laughs> that doesn't look good for us, right? We have to do a lot of work, that's for sure. If we want to last for even a couple hundred years as being a, a communicating technology. Now, the other possibility is that you do have um, things like um, if you have a civilization on a planet that could colonize other planets and they could colonize parts of the galaxy. Of course, this is like science fiction, complete speculation, but it's possible in a sense. They could colonize other planets. They could, um, you know, develop 
a highly advanced technology which is independent of a biological evolution like machines, robots that could survive for, for, for millions of years and, and quite easily could, could do many of the things that a, a technological civilization would do. But So we haven't seen that, at least not that we're aware of, right? Unless it's very well hidden. So that's, <laughs> so that's a possibility as well. Um, but we haven't, we haven't seen, seen that either. So it doesn't, from this vantage point, from my vantage point, it doesn't look good for a long-term survivability of a technological civilization. Because there's been, as I said, 13.8 billion years for all this stuff to have happened. And going back to the Fermi paradox, we don't see any of it. At least we don't know we see any of it. So it's, you can be quite pessimistic about it. But if there were Navi living on a moon called Pandora around Alpha Centauri, which is the closest star to our star, right? Would 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 they be counted in this? Because they don't produce radio waves, right? So- no, no, no. In fact, if you look at... Uh, we do a discussion of this in the paper. If you look at just simple life, it doesn't take that long for simple life to form. Um, well, in, t- in terms of, you know, uh, the universe's whole history. So simple life should be relatively more common on on uh, other planets because it's been around for so long right so it's been around for so long so in principle that kind of life should be very uh common i'm not saying it's easy to detect either and you can't detect it from radio waves but you have to detect it from for example when a on a on a planet goes in front of a star you can you can see the light going through the planet and that light will be absorbed by certain elements in the atmosphere that may be produced by life and so this is a very active area of exoplanet studies so that's one way you could find evidence for um, that kind of life. And if we use the same approach we did for this technological life, that kind of life should be super common. It should be on uh, many, many planets. And it could even be as close as uh, our nearest stars, sure. Okay. Well, yeah, that was kind of interesting. But I, if you um, have you included moons? We didn't think about moons very much, no. It's, it's an interesting topic, of course, because the moon may have something to do with, with the formation of life. We don't know. But um, that is a good idea to think about that. Uh, we know very little about, about moons around other planets. Yeah, probably something to do in the future. Are you a fan of Avatar? Yeah. I, I have seen the movie, and it's visually spectacular, yes. <laughs> I think, dude, do you want more from it than that? I, I get that. And it's, it's a beautiful movie and uh, uh, certainly a work of art. My perspective on that film is that, uh, you know, you're only worthy of being saved if your alien female creatures are attractive enough to to make a marine want to, to be with you. But if you're an ugly alien, you're out of luck. Okay, so let's go back to your research then. What, what would the aliens look like? When you picture them in your head, what do you see? Uh, you know... Uh, I don't know, of course, um, and nobody can tell you that. But my own personal philosophy, which which is based on the, how this paper was was developed and written, is that if you have the right conditions to form things in science, you will. So I take a very scientific approach to everything uh, in terms of nature. So if you have the right conditions to form a planet or a star, you will. A galaxy, you will. Uh, things happen because of their environment. You know, it's very predictable. It's not a lot of randomness. There is randomness on the level, of course, like quantum mechanics, but this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about larger scale things. So my personal belief is that if you have the right conditions, then you have uh, – uh, you should develop life. And um, I don't see why unless you think it's a, a just complete random process that happened on Earth. And so I also think that things like – Convergent evolution, which is where you have on Earth, you have various features of animals which have evolved differently from each other, like the eye is formed in several different ways, wings have formed several different times. That is, not all features that we see in animals and in living creatures evolve in one way. Many of them form separately. This is called virgin evolution. And that's a very powerful thing because it suggests that within adaptation, adaptation and evolution that there are certain features which are, are, are quite an advantage. And somehow nature assembles them based on natural selection over millions and billions of years. So why, does, why wouldn't that just happen on another planet? So things like eyes, I think, would be there. Things like arms and legs to move around, to, to grab things, to, to you know, manipulate your environment. 
to be able to move around should be there. Flying, why not? You know, something like that with wings, you know. Um, so, yes, I think in, 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 that, in that respect, I think they would look, you know, overall, they would have similar features to us. Of course, if you saw one, you definitely, I speculate, would know you, it's not definitely not a human being or something on Earth. But you would see features that, that overlap would be, my, would be my guess. But again, this is pure speculation on my part because I've never seen an alien. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet. Not yet, right. We're, we're waiting, yeah. You've put this paper out. It's, it's in the press. How are you feeling about the way it's been taken? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So it's got a huge amount of press, and uh, that's good and, and bad in some ways. So I think that the story has been... Um, you know that there's 36 alien alien civilizations, or some pa- papers like um, the Daily Star on the cover today. They had alien races, and certainly not anything I would have said. <laughs> 36 alien races in the galaxy. <laughs> that's certainly not what we are saying. And um, but that that's you sort of have to take that with uh, with press releases and how media uh, uh, will will interpret it and will publish it. So I sort of accept that. Uh, but it would be good to have a, a more of a discussion of, of things in the media like like uncertainties and the ranges and assumptions about what into these kind of things and not just say scientists say this. Um, we do say this, but we say this with certain conditions and also with an, with an error range of possible values. But yeah, it's been it's been fun. Another thing that we go into in quite quite a uh, quite a bit of detail in the paper is uh, possibilities of of what SETI might find, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So if SETI does find lots of communicating civilizations that are close closer to us than 17,000 light years or nearby, like say a thousand light years and, you know, finds several of these, it's a very good sign that our lifespan as a civilization could be much longer than, you know, a hundred or a few hundred years. So by looking for these things, we're actually looking into our future. So in, in astronomy, we're often looking in the past because the speed of light is constant, so we're seeing the universe in the past. But by looking for these alien civilizations in SETI, we're looking at our future. And if we don't find anything, if we find, look for the whole galaxy and we don't find anything at all, and we know that for sure, which won't happen anytime soon, but it could happen one day, then that would be a very bad indication for our our lifespan. Or it would tell us that we really are unique in that, you know, some special thing brought us to to life on 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 earth and that it really is either just a you know a random process or there's you know if you want to believe in religion some religious thing that happened so it has profound implications and having this number established gives us sort of a baseline for how to interpret these future studies i'm kind of disappointed in that 36 number that's not an even Barely enough for a federation of planets. Seems very low. And how many are complete bastards out of 36? I'd say at least 50%. Friend of the shed, <laughs> Ethan Siegel, Professor Ethan Siegel has written an article, Damning the Science, therein. Um, it's fun anyway. I don't mind. On the, on the 36 yes. article? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we, we know the error bars are at, at least including minus 35 because we've only got an N equals 1 that's been evidenced so far yeah well the error bars are big but there it is let's go back to the film there's a thing about the film that i don't like because i love pretty much everything about the film there is a thing that i don't and it's the song at the end in the title credits it feels a bit like like a poor man's heart will my heart will go on whatever that song is from titanic I just say in defense of Leona Lewis, and that's not a line that I usually trot out. I, <laughs> I miss the time of big musical tie-ins to a film. It doesn't happen anymore because MTV's not the powerhouse that it used to be. So there's no need to get Aerosmith to do a song for a big Michael Bay film anymore, or to get Sting, Rod Stewart, and Brian Adams to team up for a a Three Musketeers song. It doesn't happen. So I kind of like it when there's a big musical time. The only franchise where that ever happens anymore are the Bond films, where people are like, oh, what's the theme song going to be? So I kind of liked it a few years ago when Deadpool 2 came out and they forked out to get Celine Dion to do a big power ballad for the opening credits. And if you see the music video, it's even better because it's just her being Celine Dion and then Deadpool just prancing around her, being completely inappropriate. 
a power battle. It takes me back to the 90s, I, and I kind of like that. I mean, I, I'd, I'd be more concerned um, about the score because obviously uh, James Cameron uh, collaborated a lot with James Horner. He did the score to Aliens and, of course, Titanic. And he did it for Avatar, but he uh, tragically died in a plane crash a few years ago. So it'll be interesting to see who he kind of gets to do the score this time around, whether it's one of James Horner's uh, apprentices who he kind of worked with on the first film and he can take over and use the themes that were established in the first film. So, yeah, yeah it'll be interesting I, I, to see what happens. The score is great. I mean, there's no question there. The score's a wonderful thing. subject of having songs at the end of films Ty you're going to be incredibly disappointed in me because it's a very uncultured reference to make but there is a wonderful film called Friends with Benefits with Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake and one of the one of the things that the characters reference is a film that they're watching and at the end there's this really big happy number and the characters go God, they just play this happy song to convince you that you've had a good time watching this film. So now that is stuck in my head for every time I'm walking out of the cinema or I watch a film and a song is played and it's upbeat or it's really jolly or it's, or it's trying to be really powerful. And I think now they're tricking me. Did I have a good time or am I just being told to think I had a good time? Um, so that's my input. Sorry. <laughs> I find they do that with animated films. If you see like a subpar animated film, and then they end it with a big musical number to convince you that you had fun. They do it on like Shrek and a few other subpar, you know, medium their own animated films. So if we end with a big musical number, people kind of go and go, that was fun. And yeah, it's, it's covering up a, a, a more <laughs> average film than you might remember once you get to the car park. Did they have a band-aid at the end? Well, it didn't work for Andrew this time, clearly. <laughs> Did they ever do a music video for the Leona Lewis song? Oh, I'm sure they did. I, I don't. Do you reckon it was just clips from Avatar or was she blued up and... <laughs> just said blued up and it's just reminded me that there is a race issue with this film. And it, it has had some criticism. And I think that the argument is that why, why is it that the white man has to save the uh, indigenous people? It's the white saviour trope, isn't it? Yeah. Now, this is something that I, I find really interesting and... I think it falls into two camps. So you can kind of get films like The Great Wall, where Matt Damon saves the day, uh, despite there being an army of very talented Chinese soldiers, but Matt Damon's the one that figures it all out. And that's the kind of white saviour trope there. And then there are ones with Dancers with Wolves and Last Samurai, where they don't save the day, but they are there and they kind of... It's more like they are an ambassador from the Office of White Guilt, and that they realise that everything they've believed is terrible, and then they kind of shun their, you know, uniforms, and they kind of become allies of the more oppressed minority. Because there's nothing that Kevin Costner and Tom Cruise do in those films where, through their actions, the, the Native Americans or the samurai win, because they don't. They still end up losing. Um, with... Avatar, it's kind of a foot in each camp. He kind of shuns kind of the the human militaristic garb, literally becomes one of the Na'vi. But at the same time, he seems to be the only one that figures out if you fly high enough above the big, massive bird, then you can jump on it and take control. And no one's figured that one out in five generations. Mm -hmm. So it's like, and therefore he will lead the armies and everyone will follow him. So it's kind of like, yeah, but at the same time, at the end of the film, it's uh, it's Zoe Saldana that saves his life and, you know, kills a bad guy and it has the more heroic moment. I did notice that John Boyega posted on his Instagram, John Boyega, who of course plays Finn in Star Wars. And um, Moses in Attack the Block, which they yes. might make a sequel to. Really? Yeah. So, John Boyega posted on his Instagram a, a clip from Avatar, sort of the battle scenes at the end, and said, I see you, James Cameron, we know what you were what you were getting at there. We watched it at the height of the Black Lives Matter protest. The film actually got a lot of flack from the more right-wing media in America at the time because they felt that it was demonising the US military. And the film makes very clear 
I think it's like the second scene uh, where Jake Sully's doing his voiceover when he arrives there that these guys might have been military on earth, but now they're just private contractors, mercenaries. I think it's more of a damning indictment on like private security firms like Blackwater. Um, But it is, you know, a much more tooled up group going up against a woefully under-equipped group who have the numbers to kind of literally protect their heritage and uh, be exploited. So, yeah, I think James Cameron has always been, he's a massive environmentalist, James Cameron. Um, He owns a lot of land in New Zealand, actually. When I was out there, I was speaking to people and they were like, oh yeah, James Cameron like literally owns half of the North Island. And he does a lot of um, work with tribes in Brazil. Um, So yeah, he's a, you know, a sandal wearing environmentalist. And I think there are lots of themes to take from his films. Mm. And I think uh, criticism of America's, you know, industrial complex and also how the Western world tends to, to rape the natural world for its own benefit are just one of the many things that he's uh, trying to hammer the audience with in a not particularly subtle way, but then you don't really come to James Cameron for subtlety. No. (laughs) They look like blue Native Americans for a reason. He is driving this home. They commune with nature. They use, you know, bows and arrows. They kind of ride in herds. They have feathers. He is not being subtle in who he's talking about when it comes to, oh, we just took their land and we're taking whatever we want from these people. And of course, if the human is going to fall in love with one of them, uh, them being a talking tree. I mean, I'm waiting for the Star-Lord group relationship to kick off in Guardians of the Galaxy 3, but who knows whether Mm. that'll be accepted by the majority. So I'm not sure how that will play uh, in a traditional Hollywood film, but... It's kind of like in Star Trek Insurrection, where the the group they're helping look like a bunch of Aryans in beige pajamas, while the race that's exploiting them all disfigured and want to reclaim the planet. And it would have made a much more compelling film to to flip the two. That is the white Aryan types that are trying to take the planet from the the more physically unappealing. They they go with the easy option in that film. You've done an interview with. The bad guy. So the actor is Stephen Lang, who plays Colonel Mile Quaritch in the film. And despite having a massive sword smashed through his chest, he's returning for the sequels, uh, as is Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. How curious. Well, I can um, see how Sigourney Weaver's coming back because she's been, you know... Uploaded into... Yeah. yeah. Into the consciousness of the planet. Exactly. That is. But he's just dead. So what's going on there? Well, I mean, I did try and get some information out of him when I interviewed him for my book, but his, uh, his PR team were on it. So here, here's my speculation. Uh, evil, even more evil twin brother. If they can make avatars of Na'vi's in humans, then they can definitely clone people. I'm guessing they can copy genetic material. And as a big military type, it makes sense that he might have uploaded his memory in his physical form somewhere. Um, or three, like Sigourney Weaver's character, maybe his consciousness was absorbed by the planet, although without the big elaborate Navi uh, ceremony, that, that's the least likely. But it'll be interesting to see what happens. What I do know is that in the time since we've seen the first film, that I think it's relatively about the same amount of time that will have passed in the film. So it's taken seven years for the humans to go back and probably another seven years for them to come back with uh, an army. So by this time... Uh, Jake and Niratiti have kids uh, who are going to be a big part of the film. I think all played by uh, Maori and Polynesian child actors. And there's just a whole host of other characters that are returning um, and that will be introduced in the sequels. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. It's really going to be Avatar The Next Generation. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, do you know what else is going to be interesting? Uh, Born to be Bad 2, is that what it's called? Part two, yeah. Part two. Part two. Well, to be bad, part two. And it is your new book, which is coming out. I, I've read that interview because you sent that over. It's yeah. just, just going to be a wonderful thing. When's the book coming out? It's going to probably be at the end of the year. So I sent it to the publishers at the end of April, and it took about six months for the last one uh, to oh. come out. Um, my 
designer friend Ben Turner is currently finishing up the, the cover. Um, but it's got interviews with uh, 20 other actors and actresses that are famed playing bad guys, including Robert Patrick, who was a T-1000 in Terminator 2, um, Stephen Lang, of course, from Avatar, uh, William Fickner, uh, who people will probably know from uh, films like uh, The Lone Ranger and uh, the, the Dark Knight, and he's also Colonel Willie Sharp in Armageddon. He often plays sinister types. Um, and Tony Todd, who is the Candyman, and a whole range of actors. So, yeah, hopefully that will come out by the end of the year. Hopefully. Just in time yeah. for Christmas, right? Just in time for Christmas. Awesome. You know, interviews with bad guys is the perfect stocking filler. Thanks, Ty. I mean, in 2009, the idea that plants were kind of communicating with each other seemed a little bit far-fetched, but it's not actually, is it? A great deal of um, books and literature has come out in more recently anyway, talking about the various ways that plants are now thought to communicate, um, not just through, um, they're obviously not talking to each other in a way that we would recognize talking um but a lot of kind of transfer of uh, nutrients and things can occur kind of underground in between all of their interlinked root networks um and they can kind of communicate things like distress um by kind of physical proximity underground which i think is quite cool oh it's amazing i'm, I'm sure i read somewhere that technically the largest living thing is a plant because there is something where it's um, lots of interconnected root network uh, root networks underground. Fungus, isn't it? They found like a whole Thank forest you. full yes, of one yes. thing. Mycelial network. Yeah. I mean, as oh, what's that in Andrew? Well, yeah, exactly. According to Star Trek Discovery, throughout the whole universe. So the, I, I read something a while back that that just made me rethink my whole opinion of plants and. Um, in in some forests, some trees exhibit this thing called crown shyness. The the leaves of the plants, the, the leaves of the trees of a similar species, don't overlap one another. They they you, you look up at the the canopy in this forest and you see like sky in between like the, the, these lines of sky in between the crowns of the trees, and they just don't go and overlap. And I don't know if that's a active chemical thing or if it's a a passive sort of reactive thing but it it just seems quite amazing that these trees are basically communicating with each other on a a long slow massive scale the wood wide web which is uh this <laughs> it's, it's trees communicating with each other underground right it's a beautiful beautiful thing is, is that a, did you just make that up andrew no i can't claim that that's a thing the wood wide web what i would like to know is how do you get floating mountains? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of interesting geophysics. The official avatar answer is just magnets. Ma- <laughs> magnets? Just, just, it's just magnets. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of talk in the movie about magnetic fields, um, and there's some quirk of uh, Pandora's... Uh, magnetic field that that levitates these these giant mountains now i think it's pretty far-fetched i think to do that with that sort of mass on what looks like a planet with about earth's gravity um it's, it's a little bit less than earth's gravity isn't it would be a bit crazy i mean it's it's not impossible if you can generate that sort of magnetic field and i i, I don't know what that would do to organic life but it mm. certainly messes up technology as as we have it and um i mean actually maybe it's a a good reason that they haven't developed uh technology like ours on on avatar so we we see that when uh the drone ships lose all their ability to navigate around the uh, mountains which incidentally and i'll come back to this a lot regardless of the science they're absolutely beautiful Mm -hmm. um they're uh apparently inspired uh, by the the heavenly pillar mountains in um, Zhangjiajie National Forest Park in in China, I, I really want to go there because apparently they're absolutely stunning as well. They 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 look like they're floating apparently, but these ones on Pandora actually are. So um, yeah, magnets. Um, you're talking about navigation. I'm, I just maybe think that I'm presumably the animals on Pandora don't use magnetic sensing to navigate to like migrate and navigate things obviously we've got examples on earth like uh 
turtles and sharks and other things. Um, be interesting to see what what would happen. It depends if it's a shifting magnetic field or a static one. I, I imagine if it's static and weird, then it might be more convenient than just a sort of, oh, that way's north navigation sort of thing. Sure, if you could always locate the same point every time. Got lost in the woods, have you? The other um, exciting sort of geophysics stuff is is the the fact that it's a moon around a gas giant, which, if you look at the examples in our solar system, uh, leads to some pretty crazy environments. So, so Jupiter's moons pass through huge radiation belt of free electrons and ions trapped around Jupiter. Uh, by its massive magnetic field. Um, Saturn's gravitational pull, uh, you you get these huge tidal effects that uh, one of the theories about the development of Saturn's moons is, is, sorry, Saturn's rings, is is that they are moons that were ripped apart by by, by these huge tidal forces. And Titan, one, one of the moons, has these huge winds and volcanic eruptions because of that. So, all evidence in our solar system points towards moons around gas giants being fairly violent places. It's probably possible to have uh, some sort of Goldilocks zone uh, in that, but the, the maths becomes a hell of a lot more complicated. And I, I think it would be unlikely that you'd have a, a consistently habitable environment. You're more likely to get things living deep under a moon's surface if you're in, in that sort of situation. But it makes for some wicked visuals. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? I can't wait to see what Avatar 2 looks like. If it's underwater, I didn't see a lot of water in the film. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, it'd be very cool to see what's going on under there. Yeah, I'm going to have to get you back, Lloyd, because you can talk to us about the movement of the aliens underwater compared to sharks here on Earth. It would be. Uh... Yeah, that would be perfect. I mean, I'd... when you think of the diversity of life on Earth in the deep sea, you see the BBC Earth images. You just get really creepy fish and sharks that extend their jaws and things out. It's uh, There's plenty to draw from for, for James Cameron. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing. Listen, I think we should leave. Is he, is he just doing oh. a remake of The Abyss? Oh, I love <laughs> The Abyss. Has everyone seen The Abyss? That's a wicked film. That was a very <laughs> early example of, of pretty good CG for the time. Oh, also a great film. It's gorgeous. When, when, when did James Cameron go to the bottom of the Mariana Trench? There's a documentary about it now, isn't there? On one of the streaming platforms, there's, I'll see that soon. What we won't see soon is Avatar 2, but we have seen Avatar, and I would recommend that anybody who loved it when it first came out go back and watch it again, because it is a deeply beautiful thing to look at and experience again. It did provide me with the escapism that I hoped, but it also spoke volumes about our planet and the way we treat it and the way we treat each other on it. It did also make me go and watch, because of John Boyega doing this, that post on Instagram, I then went to watch another film with John Boyega in it in on Netflix, which is called Imperial Dreams. It's a beautiful thing. Watch that. I am delighted that for the first time in a long time that we've managed to put together an episode of The Cosmic Shed on a film that I actually really bloody love. <laughs> Because what are you doing later, Andrew? Should we watch it again? Yeah, let's do it. You've got um, to do the extended cut this time, guys. I had those extra 20 minutes without you. Yeah. Did do it make it all worthwhile? Well, I don't know, because I haven't watched the unextended edition since I was, uh, what, yeah. 15, so... Yeah, but there's only one thing for it. I've got to watch the extended version, see what the extra 20 minutes are, and then come back and do a whole extra episode just on those 20 minutes. No, I want to see one of those partially rendered cuts as well that Lloyd mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll find them there, um... It's, 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 it's like something I hastily put together in Blender or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, I'm, you don't have to, but if you want to hastily put something together in Blender, <laughs> blue dot, I mean, I'm all for it. I've dropped myself in it now. I saw some videos of them actually filming it, and for Avatar, they developed a, a, a quick rendering system where James Cameron could basically hold a, a monitor or some sort of tablet up in front of him whilst the actors with all their ping pong ball suits all over them uh, were doing the acting and see a draft render. So he was directing the CG parts of the movie in a similar way to the way that you you direct normal live actors. It, oh, it just looked phenomenal. Wow. Goodness knows where that tech is now, 10 years later. Yeah. 
that's the thing, isn't it? Well, what what he put together then in two thousand and nine, what is he putting together now? I'm so excited. Yeah, but and why are they still coming out with crap cut out around the actors' flat layered three D movies? Why yeah. why aren't we making good three D movies now? Just don't watch The Hobbit. It'd be fine. Yeah. We Thanks all... for making us watch this film again, Andrew. It was I, I thoroughly loved it, and I think I'm going to start a petition to make it part of the GCSE curriculum. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I um, it, so you have another podcast, Emma, and um, I'm another not, um, another podcast. Yeah, I'm not because yes. we've talked about for what it's worth, and there's another one which is also part of the Stimulus Network. It's called Small Screen Science. It's a great idea. What they do is they, they watch things on the television and then they talk about the science within them. It's amazing. It's really such a great idea. <laughs> Where'd they get that uh, idea? <laughs> I'd like to say, as much as I'd like to claim the idea as my own, it wasn't. It was my co-host Karen's idea. So if you're kind of thinking of any plagiarism copyright suits, mm. that's that's the direction in which you can okay. point those. <laughs> okay. Well, if Karen... <laughs> One of my lectures. Oh, hang on. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a wonderful thing. I, you know, I don't own that. That's fine. It's a beautiful thing. Go and listen to it. How do people find it? Thank you very much. Um, we, we're everywhere that we can be, I think. Um, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, that's the same thing. So we're definitely there. Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Um, just Google Small Screen Science and you can probably find us. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been good fun. We we do draft in some experts. So it's not just me and Karen making things up or rehashing Google, but it's it's been really interesting. Yeah, it's been good fun. Cool. Do you, do you feel say... in some sort of lean to or conservatory? <laughs> we do not. Perhaps for season two. <laughs> and I can say that despite me not being in it, it's very very good. It is. Oh, thanks, Lloyd. It was <laughs> it was really strange podcasting without you the first time. To be honest. It feels really weird hearing your voice without me uh, making some really bad pun back at you. Chipping in, I know, I know. It's, it's really strange, but I mean, for now, I'll stick to two podcasts, but they are good fun, yeah. That's what you think. You'll be back on the Cosmic Shed before you know it. <laughs> <laughs> and Lloyd, thank you for joining us for the first time. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Um, if you can think of any other um, half-forgotten sci-fi films that you'd <laughs> like an opinion on, I am... Um, Definitely looking for things to watch. I just, I have to say, actually, thinking about it, I had completely forgotten about it. It's just all about the experience, isn't it? More than the story. Absolutely. It reminds people that nature's amazing and we should be taking care of it. Yeah. That's the key takeaway, I think. Or for I, me, anyway. Yeah. And I just... Don't... No, no, it's, it, there's other planets we can go and pillage. So um, <laughs> we can, we just waste this one and then move on to the next one, right? That... Ones with fewer rhinos. Uh, Get off your flying drone, Steve. Yeah, absolutely. No, those are bad <laughs> flying drones. Terrible I'll tell you about my good flying drones at some point. Fair enough. Fair enough. It's been an absolute pleasure. They've sent us a message that they can take whatever they want. But we will send them a message. That this... This is our land! Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having us. Nice to meet you guys. Bye -bye. I'll see you later. I'm going to go have some dinner. And uh, thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.